Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota on Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusofLexington.com. Hello and welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we are here today, as we are here on every one of these podcasts, to talk about life, the universe, and everything from a Catholic perspective. And since it is Easter, I thought that it might be good to just go over a little bit some of the uh, reasons uh, that Catholics believe, that Christians believe, all Christians believe, uh, that Jesus Christ has truly been uh, raised from the dead. C.S. Lewis once remarked that the difficulty of giving an explanation for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth uh, that is not harder than the Christian explanation is very great. That challenge gets exceedingly difficult when it comes to the resurrection. Alternative explanations to the old Christian story succeed one another with the restless fertility of bewilderment. So you get various proposals. The Gospels were written long after the events, and the apostles never claimed Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, You hear apostles stole the body and lied about it. Apostles cooked up the resurrection as sort of group therapy for coping with their guilt and grief. Uh, Women went to the wrong tomb and then had hysterics. Uh, Jesus didn't really die. Uh, Apostles uh, totally believed it because they all hallucinated the same thing. Uh, Jesus came back as a ghost. Or Paul cooked up the whole thing and the apostles got shoved out of the picture in favor of the visions of this crazy epileptic, etc. and so on and so forth. Some people think that merely because so many alternative facts are asserted against the Gospels, this somehow makes it true that the Gospels can't be right. But that is to say, if you throw enough mud, some of it's bound to stick. The reality is that when the Gospels speak as one in saying Jesus is risen, and the alternative explanations can't even agree with each other, and often flatly contradict, that suggests that the whole story is, and the original story is the true one. And the desperate and contradictory stories are junk. So, first things first. The Gospels were not written long after the events. They, and almost all the New Testament documents, are written within the lifetime of the Apostles or within living memory of them. They have all the earmarks of eyewitness testimony from people who are writing memoirs, not inventing legends. Mark, for instance, is probably separated from the death and resurrection of Jesus by a smaller span of time than we are separated from the death of John Lennon. They cite eyewitnesses 
And what is more, they cite eyewitness testimony nobody inventing a fraud would cite. If you are inventing a God-man, you don't quote him saying that he doesn't know something. But the Gospels repeatedly quote Jesus asking questions because he wants information, not because he's speaking rhetorically. They even cite Jesus professing that he does not know when the end of the world will be. When's the end of the world? Jesus beats me. I don't know. And they record Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me while hanging on the cross? which was taken as absolute confirmation of his rejection by God in the eyes of most of their countrymen, because the book of Deuteronomy said, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree, and Jewish culture applied that to the victims of crucifixion. Only honest people record information that affords their opponents an obvious prima facie case against their central point. And honest people do not go around stealing bodies and announcing resurrections, nor do they go out of their way to carefully record their own massive sins, cowardice, betrayals, epic failures, and stupidity. But the Gospels do all these things. All four carefully record the sins of the apostles, culminating in their utter abandonment of Jesus on Holy Thursday. If the mission of the Gospels is to set up the Apostles as Jesus's loyal right-hand men, the mission was not accomplished. They don't even believe the resurrection. It falls to women who barely figure in the Gospel accounts to encounter the risen Christ first, and not just any women, but the band headed by Mary Magdalene, quote, from whom he had cast out seven demons, unquote. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. She is, in ancient Mediterranean culture, both Jewish and Greco-Roman, the worst witness in the world for a pack of liars to call as their first witness to the resurrection, having all the credibility of a UFO abductee in that culture. Indeed, under Jewish law, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. So why do the Gospels insist on putting her first in every single one of the resurrection narratives? The answer of the Christian tradition is because it's what actually happened. Meanwhile, the obvious claim that the apostles stole the body of Jesus just looks weirder and weirder. How do you prove it? If you believe Matthew's story that a guard was placed at the tomb, then how did the apostles get past them? If you don't believe Matthew, then who exactly is the source of the story that the apostles stole Jesus's body? Moreover, what good is this lie to the apostles? What benefit do they derive? Ahead lies nothing but suffering and death for every one of them, except John, whose brother James will be among the first murdered. If they're after power, then they're complete idiots. One variation of the apostolic lie theory is that Jesus was supposedly buried not in a tomb, but in a shallow grave and then eaten by wild dogs. This argument, put forward by John Dominic Crossan on the basis of nothing at all, 
holds that the apostles somehow turned their frowns upside down and concocted a resurrection, not as a lie precisely, but as a form of group therapy. And then for some reason decided to go out into the world to get everybody else to join in their delusion. Along the way, for some reason, they decided it would be a very good idea to invent the story that one of the richest and most prominent members of the Sanhedrin buried Jesus in his family tomb. Because nobody would think to check that or anything any more than you'd think to check with Bill Gates if somebody said he had offered his family mausoleum to a man who rose from the dead. Others, seeing the obvious problem with that scenario, attempt to get around that difficulty by shifting the blame for complete idiocy to the women who went to anoint Jesus's body in the tomb, which now gets to exist again. The story goes that in their befuddlement and grief, they went to the wrong tomb. Oh, yeah. Found it empty and, like you do, immediately concluded Jesus was raised from the dead, prescinding from the fact that they had just been to the tomb the day before yesterday and knew the way there. It leaves out other important facts, such as the reality that there is more than an empty tomb to contend with. There are also the resurrection appearances, multiple times under a wide variety of circumstances, to nearly 500 witnesses. Moving swiftly past this explanation, we then hurry on to the theory that the women went to the right tomb, but that Jesus never died on the cross. He only swooned. The claim is that Jesus then woke up in the freezing April tomb, ripped the bandages off the massive wounds he had received in his scourging, staggered to the immense stone on his bleeding and pierced feet, overcame the pain from a spear thrust to his heart, which, judging from John's description, actually pierced uh, the pericardial sac. Uh, and then, with hands still in paralyzing pain from nails through his wrists, uh, thereby paralyzing his thumbs, rolled the stone away and lurched, gasping into the early dawn to convince his disciples not that they needed to dial 9-11 and get him to the emergency room, but that he was the conqueror of death king of kings and lord of lords. That preposterous idea tossed aside, the skeptic then moves on to the hallucination theory, in which up to 500 people on multiple occasions all saw the same thing, Christ risen in glory. It's a theory that is only trotted out on special occasions like trying to disprove the resurrection, and nobody believes at any other time since people never hallucinate the same thing, and when people do hallucinate seeing something they want to see very badly, they do not then fail to recognize what they are desperate to see, which is what happened on three separate occasions with the risen Christ. Detecting the weakness in that argument, some people proposed the spiritualist explanation. The apostles witnessed a manifestation of Jesus' ghost from the ectoplasm. This explanation has the advantage of being semi-biblical and would certainly have saved the apostles a lot of grief and hassle were it true. The apostles were, in fact, prepared to believe in ghosts when Jesus appeared to them on Easter Sunday. If they could have gone out into the world preaching that the ghost of Jesus appeared to them, they would have made many more converts, converts quickly because it's what human beings expect in such stories. But they were constrained by reality, and the reality was that the risen Christ was raised bodily. That's why the tomb was empty 
and that's why many of them touched Jesus and watched him eat. John, constrained by reality and honesty, sums it up this way. The risen Christ is, quote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. And so we come to the theory that Paul invented Christianity after having some kind of epileptic seizure on the Damascus Road, transformed a small sect of Jews who just like to reminisce about their dead rabbi into a weird new sect that turned him into God and announced he was raised from the dead. The problem with this, of course, is the question of why Paul was persecuting them in the first place. If they were not saying the only thing we have any record of them saying, namely, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and was crucified and raised from the dead, then why was he bothering to go to Damascus to jail them? Moreover, if Paul cooked it all up, how did he persuade the 12 apostles to decide that the guy they had lived with for three years was not just a dead friend whose memory they cherished, but was the God of Israel and raised from the dead? Why would they listen to this crazy rabbi and his story of a vision on the Damascus Road when they knew perfectly well that Jesus was dead and buried? And why would Paul, in turn, concoct a yarn about Jesus appearing, quote, to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, unquote. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The answer is simple. Paul didn't invent Christianity. He received his catechesis on the resurrection appearances from the Twelve and the tradition they taught the church after his Johnny-come-lately encounter with the risen Christ. Then he spent several years learning, not inventing, learning the teaching of Jesus they handed down. That's why Paul, like the Twelve, went rejoicing to his death for Christ. They knew Christ is risen. And so they knew they had nothing to fear from death anymore. And neither do we. Happy Easter. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We want to help others, especially in places of strife, such as the Holy Land, where Christianity is dwindling by the day. But how to help? Here's an easy way. Buying products through the Holy Land gift shop. Every product you purchase at myfranciscan.org shop helps Christians support their families and stay in the Holy Land. Olive wood, embroidery, spices, and many more authentic products from the Holy Land are available right now at myfranciscan.org shop. The Holy Land Gift Shop, bringing the Holy Land home. I learned how many people we could help and how good you feel after you've helped others. I know Lent is about giving, so I want to give. These kids are talking about CRS Rice Bowl, a Lenten program known by generations of Catholic families. Children love it because they experience different cultures and gain a lasting impression of the people they are helping. You can bring CRS Rice Bowl into your home and experience the joy of seeing your children or grandchildren find new meaning in Lent. Visit crsricebowl.org to get started. Rice Bowl inspired me to pray more and to pray for those who are less fortunate. The Cincinnati Catholic Men's Conference is back. 
Tickets are on sale now for Saturday, April 28th at the Taft Theater at CincinnatiMensConference.com or call 513-214-1534. The Speaker Conference roster is being hailed as one of the best lineups in the country. In rare appearances, come see Father Mitch Pacwa from EWTN, the man motivator Father Larry Richards, former Moeller High School and University of Notre Dame head football coach Jerry Faust, and the big celebrity keynote, Baz Rutten, UFC world champion, MMA world champ, and movie star. The conference theme is what it means to be a true Christian man in today's society. Don't miss the incredible day of motivation, spiritual benefit, and fellowship with men from all walks of life. Get tickets now at CincinnatiMensConference.com or call 513-214-1534. That's CincinnatiMensConference.com or 513-214-1534. Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at BreadboxMedia.com.